Let me pray once more before we turn to Matthew 3. (coughs) Our Father, we've sung uh, that we will stand on every promise of your word and we know that a promise that we have made can only be fulfilled if your spirit works within us. So he asks this evening for his work uh, to take your word and bury it deep within us. And we pray that he would open our eyes, enlighten our minds, soften our hearts, so we might see wonderful things out of your word. We ask in your son's name. Amen. Uh, Well, thank you for your patience uh, bearing uh, with me. It is good to be finally uh, here at Caswellyn. I imagine you've been very well served by Michael uh, and Marty over the last 24 hours. Um, But but as we dive into chapter 3, let me give you a little bit of context I, this is what they should have said to you, okay, over the last 12 hours or so. Uh, big themes uh, of Matthew 1 and 2. I want, I want to do two, two bits of context before we get to the detail of chapter 3. Uh, the first big theme is that of kingship. Okay, hopefully this has begun to come across. The kingship of Jesus. Matthew's gospel began by introducing us to Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The wrong way around. Should be the son of Abraham, the son of David, if you're doing it chronologically. But the focus is on David, the great king of the Old Testament. Uh, We saw that he's born in Bethlehem, the the city of David, with those royal connections prophesied by Micah. Uh, You'll have seen the genealogy, the tracing through of Jesus' bloodline through to to his his father, his adopted father, Joseph. Again, tracing that royal line. And Matthew's Gospel is going to drive us right through to, to Matthew 28, where Jesus' kingship is affirmed in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. All authority is given to me. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? All authority is yours anyway, Jesus. You're God. Well, no. This is a new authority that has been given to him. A new way that he is king. Yes, he is the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God. So, of course, he's always had authority. But now, as God's Messiah, that descendant of David... And now he is God's king to rule the world. And you'll have seen already, uh, I hope, that it is a, a, an international kingship, a kingship for all nations. Uh, we've seen the Magi bowing before him in the manger. We've seen those wonderful subtle touches in the genealogy, the four women who are included. Sometimes people say they're scandalous, but they're not, I don't think. All four women are commended elsewhere in the Bible for their, their righteousness. But they are Gentiles. They are non-Jews, or perhaps in the case of one of them, a Jew married to a non-Jew. So so Jesus' body is quite literally Jew and Gentile. You know that emphasis in the New Testament, that in the gospel, Jew and Gentile are brought together? Well, that is the case very literally in Jesus. If you like, his DNA is Jew and Gentile. His physical body, descended from David, is Jew and Gentile. As will his spiritual body be when he sends his disciples out to all nations. So, so that kingship theme, king over the, ultimately, the entire of the cosmos, is one that Matthew is keen to introduce in the early chapters uh, of his gospel. And actually, he goes, if possible, even bigger than that. Matthew wants us to know in these introductory chapters that all of history, all of creation, ultimately is about Christ. I haven't had time to listen to, to Marty and Michael yet, so apologies if this has been picked up already, but in case not, 
And if so, it's worth hearing twice anyway. In the genealogy, Matthew began with lots of echoes of Genesis. And so actually the very first verse of Matthew's gospel, if you're being really literal about it, is the genesis of Jesus Christ. That word genesis is in there uh, right at the beginning. Verse 18, now the genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. There's lots of echoes of the book of Genesis in Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. We all know how Matthew's gospel ends, that great commission uh, that I've quoted already. But let me ask you this, do you know how the Old Testament ends? Do you know how the Old Testament ends? Uh, Even more specifically, do you know how the Old Testament, as Jesus would have read, read it, ends? Uh, the Jews arrange the, the, the books of the Old Testament, or what we call the Old Testament, in a different order to we do. Uh, and in, in a Jewish Bible, the last book of the Old Testament is 2 Chronicles. So please turn with me to the last verses of 2 Chronicles. The last verses of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36. Two Chronicles 36. Uh, the Jews, by this stage, have been sent out into exile, uh, and various empires have uh, captured and enslaved them. But now Cyrus, king of Persia, is on the throne. He is the world emperor. Okay, all the nations are under Cyrus. And just, just look how the Old Testament finishes, at least if you arrange the books as they, as they did in Jesus' day. Let me read from verse 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord of the mouth, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Is that ringing any any echoes? We have the the emperor of the day, the king of kings of the day, who recognises that the Lord, the God of heaven, has given him authority over these kingdoms. Verse 23. And Cyrus also recognises there's a purpose to this authority. He has charged me to build him a house. Now, that's a temple. Okay, that's the house. House and temple are the same word. Cyrus, who has been given all authority by God, realises that a house needs building, a temple needs building. And so what does he do? He says to the people, the Jewish people, go and build the house of the Lord. Now that's fulfilled in the restoration of the temple in the Old Testament days. But do you hear the echoes in Matthew's gospel? Matthew, who began his gospel with lots of echoes of Genesis, ends it with echoes of the end of the Old Testament. Jesus is given all authority, true authority over all nations. He sends, go, he sends his people out. And what are they to do? They're to make disciples. They're to build a spiritual temple, as the New Testament will later call it, the true temple of the Holy Spirit. Build the church. Matthew bookends his gospel with the bookends of the, of the Old Testament, telling us that that. Everything is about Christ. God's Messiah sent to rescue his people. So that's the first bit of context uh, for our journey through Matthew 3 uh, this evening. Jesus' complete authority over all nations, the goal of all history. 
But let me, let me give you the second context. That's the second context. Complete silence. Silence is awkward, isn't it? Okay, just a few of you beginning to get nervous. Okay, okay the organisers thinking we should have got Norm McCauley up here. Complete silence. Chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. For three, four hundred years, there have been no prophets. No one has been speaking God's word. After Malachi... Silence. And then out of nowhere, God starts speaking again. Hugely startling for God's people. Finally, the Lord is speaking. And what's that first word? After 400 years of silence, repent. Verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2 is the first word of God to his people uh, since Malachi ceased his ministry. Uh, So we're going to look. Uh, this evening, as we look at chapter 3, and just, just touch on chapter 4 as well. Uh, three, okay, I suppose three stages of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, we finished his, his childhood, his birth, and now his public ministry is about to begin. So first of all, the announcement of the king. This is chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 12. The announcement of the king. Uh, John the Baptist comes along and, and wants the people to know God is coming. God is coming. Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the other Gospels, it will be the kingdom of God. It seems Matthew is slightly reticent to to call uh, the kingdom the kingdom of God. Some people have said it's because he's particularly Jewish and the Jews don't like saying God's name. I don't know if that's right or not, but the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing. And he quotes from Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You'd have picked up, no doubt, already that, that Matthew is just pregnant with Old Testament. Uh, allusions, quotations, shadows and shapes. We won't have time to look all them up or we'll be here all night. But, but Isaiah 40 verse 3, which is what he's quoting here, is the great prophecy that, that God is coming. Prepare the way for the Lord. In Isaiah, it's prepare the way for Yahweh. And it goes on to say, your God is coming. So another nod by Matthew to the fact that Jesus is God coming. He's arrived at last. And I guess it's worth saying, even just at this stage, that as we think about a, a passage that announces Jesus' coming, we'll, we'll need to think of it in, in two ways. First of all, of course, it's about Jesus' first coming to his people, to Israel. But as we think about what it means to us today, then there'll be plenty of application for his second coming. That ultimately is what Advent's about, isn't it? You've got my kids and I've got advent calendars, all very excited. They think of it as the countdown to Christmas. And that, frankly, is what they're most excited about. But that's not what the season of Advent is about. The season of Advent, historically, is about looking forward to Christ's second coming. And so Jesus arrived. He arrives, first of all, to Israel to let them know that the exile is over. God's, God is here with his people. But he will, of course, come again. Uh, to all the earth. So how should we react? In light of the fact that God is coming, how should we react? Well, what does he want? He wants repentance. Repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, verse 2. It's the same words that Jesus opens his ministry with. Repent. He wants repentance, not religion. I think that's the implication of make the path straight. Get ready. The king is coming, so get ready. If you're having a great visitor, you tidy up. You know, the queen's coming around. You tidy up. You sort stuff out. So you're ready for their arrival. Repentance, as you probably know, is more than just saying sorry. Uh, we teach the kids at church, what, what does it mean to repent? We, we all say to them, it doesn't just mean saying sorry, but it means turning around, a changing of your mind. You were going in that direction, you turn around and go in the other. Uh, you turn, in other words, back to your king. And, and the setting kind of echoes this. Uh, notice where all this action happens. It, it happens in the wilderness uh, of Judea. Uh, the people come and they're baptised in the Jordan. It's almost as if the whole nation is having to, to go outside the Jordan to the borders. So they go outside and have to come back in again through the Jordan. It's a symbolic new start for Israel. They're in the wilderness, just as they were, the Israelites, before they, um, if you like, became God's people in the promised land. And let's turn from two things. I suppose most obviously they're to turn from sin. Verse 6, uh, these guys come out. And they go to be baptised in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. And that's normally what we'd associate with repentance, isn't it? We, we turn from our sin. The Puritan Thomas Brooks called repentance the vomit of the soul. Okay, all, 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 all the corruption, the wickedness, the evil that resides within us. Yeah, David's <laughs> rolling his eyes there. Yeah, that's like <laughs> it all comes. It all comes out. Are you vomiting? Are you vomiting regularly? It's such a simple aspect of the Christian life, but so easy left behind, isn't it? The Christian life is one of repentance and faith. We want to know how to grow as Christians. We, we want the, the deeper secrets, the hidden paths. But, but actually growth as a Christian is the same uh, path as the path into the kingdom. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. You will not finish repenting of your sins before Christ returns or you die. You, you will always have more to vomit before death or Christ claim you. But fascinatingly here, the emphasis seems to be not just on sin, but also repentance of religion. Look at verses 7 to 9. Many of those who come out are Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, we know if we've been around churches, they're the baddies, aren't they? You know, we boo when they come on the scene. They're the pantomime uh, villains. But particularly in the case of the Pharisees, they're not a million miles from us. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, were different. The Pharisees were a lay movement. You couldn't be a Pharisee for a job. Uh, the Pharisees were the, the, the guys within Israel who were the conservatives, uh, they took the Bible seriously. They believed in God. They wanted purity and holiness. Whereas the Sadducees, were, they were more the liberals. They typically were involved in the temple. They were typically priests. And they were the ones who were willing to compromise for the sake of power. Okay, they were the ones who'd go along with the Romans in order to, to hold an office uh, in Jerusalem and Judea. And John calls them both snakes. You brood of vipers, verse 7. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? They too are to repent. They are religious. They are in a sense Bible believing. And yet they too must repent. 
The Pharisees are the group we probably know more about from Jesus' preaching as, as time goes on. And we know ultimately they are a movement of self-reliance. I fast, I pray, I give. But both these movements, these religious groups, are told to repent. It's true, isn't it, that ultimately uh, we are so corrupt that, that, that we even have to repent of our good deeds. <laughs> and don't misunderstand me. We, we can do things that please the Lord, certainly. Okay, sometimes Christians get so down on ourselves that we think that, that everything we do is tainted by sin and God is just frowning all the time. That's not at all the case. Of course you can pre- please the Lord. But we're so quick, aren't we, to become Pharisees, to start feeling pleased with ourselves, to start relying on our, our good works or religious works. Uh, Here in particular, verse 9, it seems they're relying on their heritage. Do not, says John, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. We're fine, we'll get into heaven. Abraham, we're descended from Abraham. Our genealogy is pure. We're pure blood, like Harry Potter. We're the ones with the the, the traceable lineage. No, says John. The warning is against self-reliant religion. Now, there's no indication the Pharisees and Sadducees were, were baptised. We're not quite sure why they came out, whether it was just to see John. Perhaps it was just a popularity thing. But the warning is there. And what's the one person who won't repent? Well, the person who doesn't think they need to. They haven't done anything wrong. But the Christian life is one of continual vomiting and repentance. Uh, why? Well... Uh, We do say because of the wrath to come, first of all. Uh, Three times, John tells us that the the coming of the Lord is going to be terrifying. Verse 7, who who ordered you, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Uh, Verse 10, every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 12, Jesus will come with this winnowing fork. Clear the threshing floor. Gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire there's going to be a great division that the coming of god to earth is going to be a coming of in judgment and fire and fury and again we see it in those two stages don't we in jesus first coming he came and ultimately he came bringing judgment to israel it is he who came and turned the temple the, the tables over in, in the temple it is in his death that the temple was destroyed the curtain ripped in two that's the, the uh, uh, emphasis, I think, uh, of this clearing the threshing floor, verse 12. Remember, the temple was built on a threshing floor, okay, sort of barn where you sift the wheat and all the rest of it. That's where the temple was built. So in verse 12, when Jesus comes to the threshing floor, he's coming to sort out the sheep from the goats, to use another of his metaphors. He throws out the money changers. He rebukes the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Ultimately, as he predicts in his, his own Olivet Discourse, uh, he comes and destroys the temple in AD 70. Uh, and that, that, if you can put it, that the, the Judaistic system is brought to an end. He will come in judgment. Yes, he saves, but he also comes in judgment. And what's true of his first coming is true all the more of his second. He will divide. There will be a final separation. There is a full stop. There is, verse 12, unquenchable fire. He's still remembering that. One day all this will be gone. There will be no more castle conferences. One day there will be no more chances to repent. 
And when that comes, it won't simply be that Jesus gathers his people off to paradise and everyone else ceases to exist. There will be unquenchable fire. It is terrifying. But it's kindness on behalf of Christ and John the Baptist to warn us in advance. Flee the wrath to come. Just occasionally, people will say, you mustn't scare people into the kingdom of God. You, know, you must win people by love of Jesus or by seeing his beauty and his worth. And, and that's true. But there's nothing wrong with fear when it's rightly placed. And that's why verse 11 and 12, the Holy Spirit is such good news. The fact that Christ is coming to baptise with the Spirit is such enormously good news. Well, we can't clean ourselves up, can we? We can't tidy ourselves up. But one is coming who is both mightier than John and more majestic. Verse 11, he is mightier than I and his sandals. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. Some of you might be in ministry or you may well be heading that way if previous conferences or anything to go by. Okay, there is a verse for you if you end up in full-time ministry. I'm not worthy even to touch his sandals. And that's coming from John the Baptist. Why here is he particularly mighty and majestic? Well, what's he going to do? Well, I baptise you with water for repentance, but he is coming, verse 11. And he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Holy Spirit and fire uh, go together. I, I think that the, the reason they're paired is that when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church in Pentecost, he comes symbolically with tongues of fire. I don't think it's two separate things. You baptise with Holy Spirit and baptise with fire. But, but Christ is going to have the power, not simply to, to administer that water washing, but to genuinely purify us. The work of the Holy Spirit is to, well, make us holy. He is the Holy Spirit, after all. The picture of fire is one of purifying and burning. Now, if we come to Christ, that purifying is a good thing. Okay, done, done at the hands of Christ. If he baptises you with the Spirit, then he will slowly burn the sin away in your life. And that work will be completed when he returns or you die. Face him in the fire without the gospel. And it's terrifying. But Christ will baptise his people with his spirit. It's simply a picture of becoming Christian. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, which is the only place outside of the gospels that the Bible uses the expression baptism with the spirit. Paul writes, and says we've all been baptised with one spirit into one body. So the moment you join the church is the moment you're baptised with the spirit. Okay, there's, no, there's no way into the church without being baptised by the spirit. And if you're baptised by the spirit, you're in the church. You're part of the one body of Christ. And therefore, it must be a picture of becoming a Christian, being born again, to use the language of John 3. So don't think of being baptised in the spirit as some sort of extra experience or secondary experience. Don't think of it as separated from conversion. Now, the first work the Holy Spirit does when Christ baptises you with him is bring you to faith. Purifies you, if you like, from the sin of rebellion. He takes our stony hearts and brings them to life, makes them flesh. As was prophesied in the Old Testament. There's just even a little hint of that, isn't there, in John's words. Uh, warning the Pharisees in verse 9, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. That's what he's done with you if you're a believer tonight. He's taken your stony heart where there was no promising material for him to work with. No fruitful soil 
and has taken it and brought it to life. That's why being born again, being baptised with the Spirit, uh, is vital. You heard the old expression, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. You hear that? Let me say it again. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Born twice, born physically, and then born again. You'll only die once. In fact, if Christ comes again, you won't even have to do that. But you won't have to face the second death, which is the fire of judgment. If you're only born once, then you have two deaths to face. Your physical death, and then what Revelation calls the second death, the fire that John has warned about. The announcement of God's king. But, but how can he do it? How can he pour the spirit on such unholy people? That brings us to our second point this evening, the anointing of God's king, the anointing of God's king. This is verses 13 through 17. Is that word anointing? Uh, If we spoke Hebrew, we would say the messiahing of God's king. If we spoke Greek, we'd call it the Christing of God's king. Anointing or messiah or Christ are all the same word. Messiah, Hebrew, Christ, Greek, anoint, well, English. And in the Old Testament, three jobs were anointed. Three roles were anointed uh, for God's service. The king, so when David became king, he had had oil poured on his head. Uh, The prophets uh, were anointed. And so were the priests uh, as well. And here I think, particularly in the baptism, there's an emphasis on Jesus as the priest king. The king theme has been strong already in Matthew's gospel, and we've had hints that he's going to save us. He's not just going to be a powerful ruler, but we haven't had too much about how that's going to work. Uh, Yes, we've got his name, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, Yes, we've seen that in the the genealogy, a lot of the, the blokes involved there are utter scumbags. But we haven't been told much in chapters 1 and 2 about how he's going to save. And chapter 3, I think, begins to sharpen the focus. Jesus being baptised, anointed as God's priest king. Let's try and work this out a little bit. What is baptism? Well, never mind who should be baptised or the kind of questions that we debate. How should you baptise? We'll leave those for this evening. Question box Sunday morning. In, in, In the New Testament, two Old Testament stories are called baptisms. In the New Testament, twice it refers to Old Testament baptisms. Uh, the first is the flood, as in Noah, where, where the waters of judgment come. 1 Peter 3, if you want to read it later. The waters of judgment come and Noah is saved through them. Noah and his family saved in the ark through the waters of judgment. Uh, the second one is the, the Red Sea, you know, when the Israelites escaped Egypt. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, Paul calls that a baptism uh, of sorts. Again, the waters part. God's people are saved through the waters And then the waters drown everybody else, the Egyptians following. Waters, therefore, baptism in water, is in many ways a sign of judgment. It is closely associated with judgment. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Jesus calls his death his baptism. You know, I have a baptism, he says. Referring to the death on the cross. A baptism to undergo, a baptism to be baptised with. So baptism and judgment are closely associated. That's the first little marker to have in our minds. 
as we try and put the, the piece of the jigsaw puzzle together. But the second is exactly that Old Testament uh, context I've mentioned already. Uh, the anointing of various officers for particular roles. And here I, I do think the particular emphasis is on the priest. What happens to Jesus in these verses? Well, uh, he's baptised, verse 16, and then the Spirit descends on him, comes down on him to rest on him. Keep that in mind. And just turn with me to Exodus 40. Exodus 40. And we'll see the ordination, we might call it, of the high priest. Exodus 40. And verse, verse 12. This is God giving instructions to, to Moses about how to anoint Aaron, who's going to be the high priest. So Exodus 40, verse 12. Moses is told by God, Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and you shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. If we looked up in Leviticus, we could see the same ceremony being reenacted. How does it work? The high priest is brought to the entrance to the meeting place with God. He's clothed, he's washed, and then he's anointed with oil, it would have been. Clothed, washed, anointed. That happens to all the priests, all the high priests, uh, from Aaron onwards. It happens to them all, by the way, when they turn 30. That's the age that uh, their ministry begins. What do we see in Matthew's Gospel? Well, we have Jesus, who actually Luke tells us is 30, when his ministry begins. Uh, we see him come to the Jordan, the entrance to God's land. Uh, he's already been clothed. God in the flesh has been clothed with our humanity. That happens in the incarnation. He is now washed in baptism and anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is Christed, if you like. In other words, he is being appointed publicly as that high priest for Israel. He is the one who is going to deal with their sins. You remember in the Old Testament, that's what the high priest was in charge of. The sacrificial system, leading the people in worship and, and in the ceremonies that appointed the purification of sin. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is identifying with his people and saying, I, I will be with you in these waters of judgment. In fact, I'll be with you instead of you. I'll be in the waters instead of you, rather. It's as if all the dirt and grime that was washed off uh, the sinners as they came to be baptised under John was washed onto Jesus. Uh, in England, we have a sport, uh, rugby. Uh, I don't know if you guys play it. Um, I try and keep my eyes off Irish rugby at the moment. <laughs> You know, these big rugby baths afterwards, okay, absolutely filthy, okay? First couple of people get in. After that, you do not want to get into them because you're only going to get dirtier. Big, massive baths. That's what the Jordan is for Jesus. 
It's as if symbolically all, all, this, all the sin is washed off the people and washed onto Jesus, the righteous one. Jesus, who's been introduced to us so far as pure and spotless and without sin, is voluntarily plunging into the waters so that our sin might be washed onto him. He, the great high priest, will bear our sin. The high priest's job in the Old Testament was to take sacrifices into the presence of God. But Jesus will be that sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the great high priest had the 12 tribes of Israel carved on his breastplate, 12 different coloured stones and on his shoulder plates. Jesus will take his people, their names, yours and my name, written on his heart, born on his shoulders, and he will undergo the floods of judgment he will go through the fire. He will go under the waters so that we might not have to. We wash to get clean. Jesus washes to get dirty. You can see why John doesn't want to baptise him. It makes no sense unless you understand this. He has come, verse 15, to fulfil all righteousness. He is the one who has come to live the perfect life in our place. And yet... And yet, he is willing to plunge into the floods of the filth and stench of sin in order that you and I might be clean, cleansed and cleaned by his death and by his spirit of fire. And just look at the blessings that pour out in response. There are two beholds that give us the clue. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptised, immediately he went up from the water and behold... There's the first one. The heavens were opened and he saw a spirit, the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven. There's the second. So the heavens open and the spirit comes down. That's the first behold. The second behold is the voice. So the first behold, Jesus is anointed with the spirit. All the way through the Old Testament, anointing with oil was always a picture of the true anointing, the anointing with the Spirit. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Echoes of my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring justice to the nations. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, but here he is filled again, if you like, by the Spirit, anointed for his ministry empowered for his ministry uh, but there's more i think he's not just a priest he's also a king verse 17 behold a voice from heaven this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased my son this is my son i don't think this is the father speaking in Trinitarian terms exactly here. And that is true, don't mishear me, Father, Son, Spirit. And we see them all there. But, but particularly, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I think probably it's picking up those echoes again of the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7 and onwards, where the kings of Israel are known as the sons of God. David and his children, his male descendants who take the throne, have the privilege of being called the son of God. Again, Jesus is the son of God in two ways, just as he is king in two ways. He's the son in terms of the second person of the Trinity. But he also takes this earthly role as a man of being the son of God. Another title for the king. So the spirit anoints him 
for this kingly role. It's interesting that the signs. What do we see? A dove. The Spirit comes down like a dove. What are the two baptism stories in the Old Testament? First one, Noah and the flood. How does it end with a dove coming down? What's the second one? The parting of the Red Sea. What does God call his people when they've come through the, the, Red, the Red Sea? It's my son, Israel. It's called the Son of God. What do we see in Jesus' baptism? The Spirit come down like a dove and the voice saying, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. Both those pictures, the, 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 uh, the flood and the parting of the Red Sea to, to allow Israel to escape to their new land are the beginning of a, a new creations, if you like, new starts, dramatic new starts in the Old Testament story. And that is what Christ is bringing. And who does he start with? He starts with a king. God starts with a king, rather. If he wants to begin a new people, a, a new beginning, he starts with a king. In the Old Testament, that was always the way. Uh, particularly in the time of David onwards, if, if the king was obedient and faithful, well, the land would be blessed, the crops would grow, the enemies would be defeated. If the king wavered and wandered from God, then the crops would fail, the rains wouldn't come, and the enemy invaders would swarm. How it went with the king is how it went with the people. And ultimately, when they go into exile, it is because of the sins of Manasseh, the king, that leads the people astray and into exile. So when God wants to create a new people, a pure people, purified by the power of the Holy Spirit, he starts by sending a pure king. And our destiny lies in his hands. What Jesus has come to do is win the blessings that we could never do. And that's why there's so many echoes here, I think, of creation. In the first creation, what did the Spirit do? Hovered over the waters. And then the land emerges and God makes his people. Here, Jesus emerges from the water. The Spirit hovers. The voice says, I'm well pleased. You know, this is very good. Here the echoes of Genesis. God is beginning again a new people who will be fit for a new creation. And he begins with this priest king. And because Christ has these benefits, well, they're available to you and me. Christ has been filled with the Spirit. Therefore, he can pour the Spirit on his people. You receive the Holy Spirit from the hand of Christ. It is not that Jesus comes and does the sort of Bethlehem to Jerusalem and the tomb stuff and then goes to heaven and puts his feet up. And then the Holy Spirit takes over for the kind of acts onward stuff. No, it is Jesus who baptised you with the Spirit. The reason the Spirit can dwell in you, sinful human beings as you and I are, is that he dwell in Christ first. And we are bound to Christ. Our heaven is opened, verse 16, because of the righteousness and obedience of Christ. And therefore it's opened to his people too. It's open to the king, it's open to his people. The voice from heaven, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, my beloved son, can be said of you because you are in Christ. What's true of the king is true of the people. That's always been the way. Same in the, the Old Testament. Remember, uh, in fact, 1 Corinthians 10 again, Paul talks about the Israelites being baptised into Moses. 
Strange phrase. What does it mean to be baptised into Moses? Well, I think he's simply saying that, that for Israel, their destiny was bound up with that of Moses. And fascinatingly, Moses' life in the early chapters of Exodus uh, runs as a little foretaste, a trailer of what's going to happen to Israel. And Pharaoh tries to kill Moses uh, when he's a baby. Uh, he grows up, he flees into the wilderness. He meets God at the burning bush on Mount Sinai. Go on a few years and the whole thing happens. You know, Pharaoh tries to kill the Israelites. They flee into the desert. They meet God at Sinai in the burning, burning mountain now, not just a bush. What's true of the king is true of the people. You're baptised into Moses. We are, you are, baptised into Christ. How do you receive all these blessings? Well, ultimately through baptism. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you want to share in Christ's benefits, you need to be baptised into him. Never mind the hows and whos and all the rest of it now. And you know, you're all evangelicals, you know that it's not automatic. It's not as if the water just does it magically. But baptism is the entry sign, the sign of being united to Christ. So as long as you have faith, faith union that the Spirit brings, then you share in the blessings of Christ. Heaven opened. Spirit poured out. And God will look at you, the Father, and say, you are my child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. He's blessed for you in that sense. All the blessings that are poured on Christ on the banks of the Jordan are poured on him publicly for you. So if you lack assurance that heaven is open, go back to the banks of the Jordan. If you lack power for Christian living, you feel that the weight of sin is too great for you. There are some things you can't break free of. Go back to the banks of the Jordan. You lack confidence that, that God really loves you. Go back to the banks of Jordan. All these blessings are given for your sake. Jesus didn't need a voice from heaven. Jesus didn't need to see the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove. Jesus didn't need to see heaven opened. He knows all these things. But they are public and audible and visible for the sake of his people. So we would know that the king is winning for our sake. And that takes us to our final point before we close. About the announcement of God's king, the anointing of God's king, and now the attack on God's king. Chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 through 11. I very rarely go to the cinema, but I managed it a year or so ago. That's kids, not any kind of problem with cinema. Uh, we saw Doctor Strange. So my wife and I saw Doctor Strange. Um, it's a Marvel, weird film. Um, but there's an amazing line, early doors, where, where Doctor, Doctor Strange, he's a, he's a medic, scientist, sceptic, rationalist, and some weird person is trying to persuade him that there's more going on in life. And, the, the, and he only believes in stuff he can see and touch. And this woman says to him, you're looking through the world through one small keyhole. Okay, you're just looking at the world through one small keyhole. Oh, you're not seeing the spiritual battle that's really going on out there. Now, Dr. Strange takes that in a very different direction than Matthew 4. <laughs> but Matthew 4 does open our eyes to, to look at the world through a bigger keyhole. There is a spiritual battle going on that we so easily miss. Uh, here is the battle between Christ and Satan. And in this passage, there's two way, there'll be two ways of looking at this. Uh, it, it, we could look at this passage as if it was um, a battle between good and evil, like uh, uh, is, is it Harry Potter. Harry Potter. They, they get taught defence against the dark, dark arts, don't they? 
um, you know, you as a little junior wizard have got to learn how to fight the, the bad forces. So Dumbledore, or whoever it is, the chief wizard, teaches the little wizards how to go and fight. Some people read Matthew 4 as if it's primarily that, teaching Christians how to go and fight against the big bad Satan. There is truth in that. We'll touch on it before we close. But, but more to the point, this is, this is the kind of battle, it's the kind of battle we say when, you know, at the Olympics, or maybe you guys, you know, you might well say to me later, oh, wasn't it great when we beat New Zealand last week? Okay, a rugby. None of you beat New Zealand, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> if you did, none of you were on the pitch. None of you played, none of you passed a ball, kicked a ball, scored a try, but you identify with them. And because you're part of their people, it is your victory. This passage is not about primarily a training that we undergo in order to fight Satan, but about a victory won for us by a true champion. What's the evidence that this is a battle uh, that Jesus fights, not just as a private individual, but for his people. Well, we've already seen the context. He's had the sin of the world washed onto him. So we expect his actions now on as a high priest king to be for his people. But there's more. Every answer he gives in the temptation, uh, as the devil comes to him, comes from a very small section of Deuteronomy. Now, if you think about it, there are loads of ways Jesus could have answered Satan's challenges. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus could have chosen Psalm 146. The Lord gives food to the hungry, but he doesn't. He chooses Deuteronomy. Throw yourself down. God will save you. Jesus could have said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but he doesn't. He goes for Deuteronomy. Now, the last temptation, a high mountain, bow down to me. Jesus could have gone for, I am God, there is no other. I am God. There is none like me, Isaiah 46, verse 9. But again, he goes for Deuteronomy. Every time he goes for Deuteronomy, why? Why? Because he is very consciously acting out his identity as the true son of God. He's just been told, you are my son. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And we've said in the Old Testament, that three people are called the son of God. The kings, so Jesus is God's king. They get the title son of God. Adam. And thirdly, Israel themselves. Out of Egypt, I called my son, you looked at yesterday. A corporate identity as Israel. Jesus is acting in place of all those failed sons. He is the true king, the true Adam, the true Israel. I think the emphasis here particularly is on Israel. That's why the fasting and uh, whole incident, verse 2, lasts 40 days and 40 nights. It echoes the 40 uh, years in the wilderness where God's people were unfaithful. And he quotes from Deuteronomy because he's quoting from those very passages where God's people are being tested in the wilderness and prove unfaithful. Uh, there are, I think, also echoes of Eden. It's probably stronger in Luke's account. But you can hear each of the tests that echoes those Eden tests. You know, take food illegitimately. Take the fruit from the tree. Throw yourself down. You won't die. It's Satan in Eden. Eat the fruit, you'll surely not die. And bow down to me, very obviously, what Satan wants Eve to do in Eden. But the emphasis here, I think, is on the failure of the people to respond faithfully in Deuteronomy. And each time, Jesus conquers. 
He trusts in the Lord and doesn't give in to Satan. And that is great news. Verse 11, it it results in the devil fleeing from him. The enemy is conquered, as it were. He is the champion who here fights for you. It's great news that he's conquered. It's also great news, by the way, that he therefore can understand what it's like to be put on trial, to undergo temptation. You know, we often think, well, Jesus doesn't really understand. He's God. He can... And these books, by the way, help understand why Jesus, how Jesus is truly man. But, but, but here we see him being genuinely tested. And his, his sufferings and, and temptations are harder than yours and mine. They go on for longer. Yeah, we break so quickly, don't we? So we don't feel the full strain of testing and temptation. But his go on for longer. It's like holding your breath underwater. The longer it goes on, the harder it gets. He's a heavier. Everyone's salvation is on his shoulders. If he sins just once in thought, word or deed, that's it. The world is ruined. He's a fiercer. Very unlikely that you or I have faced the devil one-to-one. Plenty of other demons tempt us and we're gone. The devil can only be in one place at one time. He's not God. Jesus is a fiercer. And of course, they're undeserved, whereas yours and mine, frankly, we deserve anything we get. And therefore, Jesus really knows what it's like to be tempted. To be put on trial, testing and, and temptation, by the way, the same word here in the Greek. So when you bring your suffering to Jesus, your temptation to Jesus, he understand. You get these ter- terrible stories of soldiers coming back from Afghanistan or, or Iraq, and they just can't speak to people because people don't understand. But, but this, if you like, when you bring your temptations and su- sufferings and trials to Jesus, it's like a soldier coming back from Afghanistan and speaking to his granddad who fought at D-Day, who can truly say, I've been there. I know what it's like. And astoundingly, he has conquered. He remains faithful. If you are the son, the test of provision, the first one, if you are the son. What's the test? Well, the test is, I think, simply, will Jesus trust God to provide or will he snatch it legitimately? I don't know why 40 days he's gone without food, but for whatever reason, that is the case. He's not to take food illegitimately. And so he doesn't. I don't think the idea is that, you know, the Bible feeds me, not food, as if, you know, you have a quiet time rather than cornflakes for breakfast. But rather, God's word promises that he will provide what I need when I need it. Jesus knew that he wasn't going to die by starvation. Okay? He knew that his death would be at the cross. Would he wait patiently for God's provision? He knew God wouldn't let him starve to death. The second one is the test of protection. He takes him to the holy city, throw yourself down. Uh, Satan quotes Psalm 91. The angels won't let you crush your foot. Did you notice when we read Psalm 91 earlier that the psalm goes on? It's as if Satan hasn't read the psalm. It's amazing. Or it's just very arrogant. I don't know. So the very next verse is after the ones that that, that Satan quotes. Say this, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Promise to Jesus, you will trample the adder and the lion, the two pictures of Satan in the New Testament, the serpent, obviously, and the lion who prowls around wanting to devour you. I think here again, the test is not, it's not that, that Satan tells Jesus to take a leap of faith. The leap here will be a leap of, of doubt. If Jesus leapt off the temple, it'd be like he's testing God in advance before his death as to whether God will rescue him. Okay, let's just see if God is the God who will rescue me from the claws of death. I'll jump off. But, but the call on Jesus was to trust in the Lord, his father, right until his death, 
that even in death, the Lord would raise him up after his death. Rather than practice a few times first by doing some suicidal things to show that God would rescue him. Again, it's a test of Jesus' faith, we might say. And then finally, the test of promotion. Bow down, the high mountain, maybe a vision, who knows, lifts him high and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms. Just bow down. Take, take what's yours. It's rightly yours, Jesus. Just don't go through the cross. But Jesus won't do it. He had the right to do it, obviously, to take the kingdoms, not to bow to Satan. But again, Jesus trusts. He waits patiently for God to promote him to glorious rule, having walked the route of the cross. Jesus has been called to exercise faith. And he does it for your sake so that you and I can be saved. He had no need to do any of these things. He had every right to eat. He had every right if he wanted to parachute off the temple, to just claim any kingdoms of the world, to rule in power with no mercy. But he goes through this for your and my sake in order that we can be gathered into this heavenly kingdom. He shows perfect faith that we might not fail. Now, the enemy is a deadly one. He tempts us and he tries us. Uh, he's an opportunist. He pounces on our weakness. 40 days without uh, food and he, he goes for hunger. Be on your guard when you're at your weakest. You'll know when you're weak. Often when we're alone, at night, whatever it might be. You're aware of Satan's schemes. He's full of half-truths. The half-truth he uses of quoting Psalm 91 to Jesus. Satan's logic. He knows the Bible well. He's smart. God loves you. True. God wants you to be happy. Basically true. A bit unnuanced. So why not go out with that non-Christian guy? Mm. Makes sense. He's also generous. See, each of these miracles, each of these temptations is a giving miracle. I want to give you bread. I want to give you glory. I want to give you kingdom. Satan's a great giver. He will always be offering you things to pull you away from God and his word. Like you know, Narnia, Edmund, the white witch. He's given. What's he given? Turkish delight. Filthy stuff, actually. But, <laughs> but the good news of this passage is not that it is full of wise advice to conquer Satan, but rather that Christ has conquered. And so if you stick with him, then Satan could do nothing to claw your way. Whatever he offers you, resist, because Christ has more. Whatever power the world seems to have, resist, because Christ has more. However good the world delivered by Satan might seem to you stick with Christ because he is better he has gone through all this for you baptized into the muck of our sin to rescue you from the fires that rightly should pour out on you in order to open up heaven and hear that voice of the father you are my son you are my daughter with you I am well pleased that is what is on offer you in Christ and such is his love that it meant him going through the fiery baptism of his death the trials in Gethsemane, the trials in the wilderness, simply for your sake. He gained nothing except your salvation. Such is his love. Let's pray.